welcome to the Dad Strength Podcast, helping you take care of yourself so that you can be present for your people. The Dad Strength Podcast is an Unlearning Network production. My name is Jeff Gervitz, and I am part of your neural network. You know, we are a very brain-centric culture, not just the brain, but the way we tend to hold cognition above all else. This happens in the neocortex, your thinky brain, and that is in opposition to, say, your lizard brain, which is uh, the limbic system. So even within our own brains, we play favorites. We love the heart, which is kind of a workhorse, a power center. The lungs are its tag team partner. And then attention and discussion go way down from there. Tell me if I'm wrong, but most people really couldn't give you more than a sentence or two on the liver or the pancreas and the gallbladder, the tonsils, the appendix. Just toss those suckers out, right? They can, they can just go out and nobody notices or cares. So <laughs> it's kind of the same deal on the cellular level. Uh, if there's one thing that you will remember from grade eight biology, it is that the mitochondria are the powerhouse of the cell. You remember that line? But what about everything else in the cell? What role does the other stuff play? And would we do better? Really, would we be smarter if we could look at everything as more of an integrated system than a traditional hierarchy with all the information starting at the brain and then going top down from there? Well, that's what I'm itching to find out or explore in more depth. My guest today, Dr. Thomas Verney, is a psychiatrist and researcher. He's also an author who recently published The Embodied Mind. And here is where he takes a look at how the whole body works together, how memories and even decision-making can be encoded in our genetics, in our cells, and in a variety of places that aren't traditionally included in the discussion of intelligence. If you're like me, you might hear this and fear, hey, is this going to get all new agey and kind of parasciency? And it's not. This is a well-researched book. It's a different perspective on intelligence, but it's not rewriting any of the fundamental mechanisms. And Dr. Verney really made this a labor of love. And I'm looking forward to sharing uh, some of Dr. Verney's insights with you. Before we begin, I would like to tell you about our sponsor, Othership. You can visit Othership at othership.us. It is a guided breathwork app. Sessions can wake you up. They can calm you down. They can help you reset your state of mind. I often use Othership to transition into great sleep, but I have also really enjoyed it as sort of an alternative to meditation apps. Um, if you are like me, I have ADHD. That can mean that it, you sometimes need more complexity. And, and I think when something's too broad, um, your mind can go anywhere. So I found that using Othership, having very specific uh, breath work to do, there is a cadence, there is guidance, um, just kind of gives me enough cognitive balls to juggle, right? there I am in cognition again, where um, I really get a lot out of it. You can try Othership for free by going to othership.us. And uh, I just think it is a potentially powerful tool in just getting into the right state of mind. Okay, now for my interview with Thomas Verney. Let's get into it. Tell us about who you are uh, personally, professionally, creatively. <laughs> okay, so we have about 24 hours for this. <laughs> uh, who am I? Who am I? Well, I'm a psychiatrist, and uh, I am an author. Um, I, I write scientific books, but I also write poetry and short stories. Um, I am more or less retired, but I still see some patients uh, from my former active psychiatric life. Uh, and I am married, and I have children and grandchildren. How's that for a start? That's a great start. Now, now you are uh, you've been married twice. Is that right? Yes, yes, I have. Yes. And how long in your second marriage? In my second marriage, it's forty-six years now. Congratulations! So that's uh, that's nothing to sneeze at. No, nothing to sneeze at. No. <laughs> You have uh, you have uh, kids, grandkids. The the full yes. catastrophe. Yes, I have grandkids. I just spoke to one of them uh, a couple of hours ago. She just had a child, so actually, I'm a great grandfather now. Mazel tov. Okay. Thank you. 
Thank you. Wow. Um, how has your professional life informed uh, fatherhood or grandfatherhood? Well, uh, when, um, when, when I was first married and had my first child, which was in 1962, a long time ago. Uh, and I wanted to be present at the birth of my child. Uh, so I was only able to see my child uh, after he uh, was born, which just a few hours later, which really went totally against what I believed in, sort of theoretically. But what could I do? Uh, that was 1962. Looking back, I wish my relationship with my first wife would have been better, because then my relationship to the children would have been better. But the relationship was rocky. There was not a kind of division of roles uh, in terms of like who's responsible for the children. Uh, it was not like an equal kind of a balance. And so I was not fully involved in parenting my boys as I would have liked to. And, um, and, and that, is, that is a painful uh realization and and message for me to carry through my life that i i was not somehow i was not mature enough really um not strong enough not mature enough uh to assert myself i was not then the kind of father i would have liked to have been so what can i say uh we all have regrets and that's one of my great regrets on the other hand, uh, my relationship with my stepchildren is terrific. And again, a lot of that is due both to my second wife, Sandra, and the fact that I have learned a lot. And also, you know, I have become more of a man um, in, in the classic sense of the word. What does that mean uh, to you to be a man? Well, essentially, you know, a good man is like a good woman and vice versa, um, caring, kind, compassionate, uh, intelligent, uh, cultured, uh, taking an interest in your fellow beings, taking an interest in society. Uh, those are the things I think that a good person stands for. and. Uh, and I don't see much difference, you know, between men and women in, in those essential qualities. I asked because, uh, you know, we were chatting before and uh, Robert Bly, mm -hmm. uh, uh, I, how would we describe him? Uh, he was, I mean, at, at, in the 90s, I guess, there were, there were guys going into forests and banging drums. But at, at the heart of this, like before the cliches, was I think a pretty earnest attempt to kind of rediscover masculinity and you said um, yes. that you've done yeah yes yes there was and it and it was good and it was necessary then i think it was necessary uh it was the rise of feminism and uh, men didn't know sort of how to fit into this new culture um it it felt like that everything that men did was somehow wrong and uh, and many men uh, felt somehow like second-class citizens. They felt like women have felt for the last God knows how many centuries. So there's a lot of work to be done in terms of equality. And, uh, and I think that's where the men's movement also came in because a lot of men felt that they were being blamed for all kinds of things that they had nothing to do with, you know? Yeah, this is uh, this is a common tension. We see this in different places where people have sort of inherited a system. Yeah, and it's it's not your fault, but it is your responsibility. Yeah, that's a good one. Yes, 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 and definitely, I'm sure that people like you and I are doing our best 
to to correct the you know to correct that to to somehow make it better to improve things for for everybody yeah i think one of the the places people are struggling is you know to take care of someone else is not to negate who you are as a as a group right mm-hmm. whether we want to break that down by by gender mm-hmm. um, or ideas of race or whatever else uh, mm-hmm. but people do get stuck on that people do get stuck on it that's right we all have a right to exist and we all have a right to express ourselves any way we want to as long as we don't uh endanger somebody else's livelihood or life mm-hmm. so asking that i think one of the tricky parts of that is uh with sort of entrenched systems yes. uh sometimes the harm isn't it's not intentional it's just it, it, just by maintaining yes uh, yes. what we've got, it can, it can be harmful. So mm. it is, uh, you know, it's a, it is yeah. a tightrope walk to, uh, yes. to do right. I think to be, to be a good person. Uh, yeah. If I can segue into my book from I wish there. you would. Yeah, please. <laughs> you know, this, this idea, this idea that, uh, at the head of the clan is a man, right? We so often use the word head to indicate like this hierarchical system that we have est- that men have established in society for god knows how many centuries and the same thing has happened in biology uh, that the head has become <laughs> uh, the supreme sort of organ and everything mm. else is underneath it okay so uh, we very often talk about, for example, psychosomatic medicine, uh, implying that somehow what goes on in the mind, which sort of classical science sees as an epiphenomenon, as a function of the brain. Uh, neuroscientists like to use that term, epiphenomenon, just like epigenetics. Uh, the same epi, so up there, uh, above, above. So it's all above the neck, okay? And the fact that we have a body and that the brain is connected to the body and that the body sends signals to the head is just ignored. Mm -hmm. It's just ignored. So, you know, uh, we, we don't talk about about body psycho body psychometrics or anything like that it's all about the head and how the mind can change everything else in the body but the mind is seen as part of the brain and what i'm trying to do in my book is to show that that is a wrong way of looking at the mind and uh what we have to realize is you know uh, that yes, the mind controls the body, but the body con- the but the mind is also part of the body. I wish we had a different expression for the mind because most people equate the mind with the brain. And what I'm trying to show, and you know, we have discussed before we started, that everything in my book is based on research. And it's all studies that have been published at the very top universities in the United States, Canada, and the rest of the world. Uh, It's all based on solid science. And that science shows, you know, that every cell, every tissue, every organ in the body contributes to the mind. It contributes to the way we think. Uh, May I give you an example? Please. So I, I love, I, you know, the study, I mean, there are many studies, like I've said uh, in my book, but the, the one, you know, I, I have a few favorite ones. And the one that I really love is a Harvard study that divided 84 hotel mates into two groups. One group was told that the work they do is good exercise and satisfies the Surgeon General's recommendations for an active lifestyle. This information was the equivalent of a placebo because it wasn't true. Uh, The other group, control group, was not given this information. 
And although uh, actual behavior did not change, the hotel maids worked just as hard as they did before. Uh, four weeks after the start of the experiment, the informed group perceived themselves as getting significantly more exercise than before. And, and this, is, this is really the interesting part. Compared to the control group, uh, the, ex, the, the ones that thought, thought that they were exercising showed a decrease in body weight, blood pressure, body fat, waist to hip ratio, and body mass index. Uh, the women in the experimental group did not work harder than the controls, but their belief system actually changed the way their bodies functioned. So that, that is a beautiful little study on how the mind can make a huge difference in the body. But by the same token, you know, uh, the body can do the same to the mind. <laughs> but again, you know, by mind, I mean the total mind, the connected mind, not the ensculled brain mind, but the bodied mind. Mm -hmm. we're, am, getting, am, we're getting information I, from all over the place. There is a it, rich network. Exactly. You said it beautifully. There's a rich network. And it's all about networking, which people nowadays should have no trouble understanding. You know, it's, it's sort of like a body wide web. You know, mm. and so, um, for example, do you play chess? I do. Good. So do I. Uh, I played chess since I was nine years old. I love playing chess. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna reach out to you. We're okay. About playing some yeah. games. Yeah, by all means, let's do that. Uh, so, chess masters, in like just recently, for example, you know, there there was a world championship that you may be aware of. Uh, so chess masters before a championship, part of their time, of course, is in preparation. They are, pre they are, they are preparing all kinds of openings, all kinds of new ways of surprising their opponent. But the other part of their preparation is exercise. Mm -hmm. Everybody knows that you can think better if your body is in better shape. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's, it's part. So as your body gets into better shape, your mind gets into better shape, not just because of your brain, but because of your body mind, right? Yeah, it's been interesting for me over the years to watch how, um, you know, even once upon a time, yeah, uh, professional sports like the NHL, I, I read the, uh, requirements for athletes returning to season in the early 1950s for the Maple Leafs. And, 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 you know, the orders were like, you have to be able to do at least 10 push-ups and 10 sit-ups. Okay. And bring your golf clubs to camp. And that was the extent of, of the physical preparation, obviously. We right. Right. Very, very developed versions now, but in more recent years, people started to bridge the gap. Um, you know, golf is an example where, where they didn't yeah. think very seriously about strength and conditioning. Uh, uh, NASCAR, drivers. Um, I'm starting to see um, e-athletes just just now, uh, people, you know, professional video game players beginning to, to take this seriously. But um, can you can you help kind of explain what this interplay is and why it matters and why these aren't just completely different systems, uh, uh, brain and body? Well, um I, I'm sure that you have heard and our listeners have heard a lot over the last few years about the bacteria that we carry in our gut, the so-called gut microbiome. Uh, hardly anybody really realizes that we have about five pounds of bacteria and viruses in our gut, five pounds. Uh, it's, it's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. Mm -hmm. And most of them are very, very beneficial. And uh, these gut microbiome uh, send constantly signals to the brain. And they produce all kinds of substances 
which go into the blood and through the blood they go to the brain. They also send signals through the vagus nerve, which is the tense cranial nerve. Very, very important nerve because it connects the heart and the gut and the brain. So it goes from the brain to the heart and it goes to the gut. So this is incredibly important because the gut then communicates with the heart. So when, for example, we get upset, the heart starts pounding faster. Mm -hmm. uh, and there is a lot of research, a lot of research to show that the gut microbiome has a lot to do with depression. It even contributes to Alzheimer's disease, depending on what kind of bacteria we carry. There has been research done on sociability, interestingly enough. I mean, it's the last thing that I would think of, but I have the research on that, which shows that people who are more social, who interact with people like you do, just from the few 10 minutes that I spent with you before we started saying hello and goodbye to God knows how many people. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, you know, um, people who have good interpersonal relationships have a different gut microbiome from people who are isolated and lonely. So if we can, for example, shift that microbiome and then we can also shift their sociability. We can also prevent Alzheimer's disease, perhaps, with a lot of people. If we can find out the relationship between, let's say, the good bacteria that we have in our guts mm -hmm. and the bad bacteria or lack of good bacteria that we have in our guts. So all of this is very, very relevant uh, to how we live our lives. Uh, being optimistic, again, is incredibly important. Optimists live longer than pessimists. And, um, you know, we are architects of our own lives. I think, you know, that, that's, that's the message, really, that I want to uh, put out, communicate uh, to our listeners, that you can do a lot to improve your own health and your longevity and your mental health, your, your overall physical and mental health. Mm -hmm. One thing I want to say to the to the listeners yeah. here is this: if if this is new to you, uh, ideas around the enteric nervous system, uh, for example, um, it, it can sound kind of woo woo. And even starting the book, there were a couple of times where I said, "Uh oh, is this going to be one like a para wellness book where it's like quantum physics exists and therefore you can travel through different dimensions?" But Time and time again, uh, there was such a quality of uh, of references of scientific of academic work, um, and and it's really it's I, I mean you you pulled a lot of new um, and emerging research, but yes. I think more than that, it's just a, a perspective shift on the way it's organized and the way we think about this stuff. And there were a lot of examples in the book, for example, about um, almost encoded memory on a cellular level, on a genetic level. Um, you know, comparisons to some of the some of the things we've tried to reproduce, um, whether we we deliberately uh, mimic biology or not in uh, computers and microchips. Um, can, can you give me an example of? Um, well, actually, maybe maybe we can back up. Can you can you explain what epigenetics uh, is? Sure. What epigenetic changes sure. are? Yeah. Sure. Yes. Gladly. And and thank you for your for for your support and your positive comments. Um, yeah, um, in the past, probably up to about 30 years ago, people thought that your genes are your destiny. You're born with a certain number of genes in a certain way, and they will more or less, it's, it's like the hardwiring of your, of, of your computer. This is all that that computer can do. Then, about 30 years ago, and gradually over the last three decades, it was discovered that the genome, which is sort of all the, all the genes that we have, uh, that actually only a very small part of the genome actually contains genes. And the rest of it, because scientists being what they are, uh, refer, to it, refer to it as junk DNA, junk DNA. 
because they did not understand it. And anything we don't understand is junk. Uh, well, it turns out that that's not junk at all. It turns out that a lot of the uh, lot of the 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 chemicals the 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 uh, what shall we call them uh, the proteins there uh, much of the material much of the material on the genome really has to do with switches and uh, in in scientific language they're called acetyl groups uh, and uh, so many of these switches many of these switches have to do with the environment and according to what the environment is for that person some of those switches turn genes on and some of them will turn them off and so the genes don't change but their activity changes mm -hmm. so it's just imagine a switch, an electrical switch in your room, and when you switch it on, the light comes on. Except that the switches that we have on our genome are very, very finely calibrated. So some of the genes might be just a little bit active. Some of them might be very active. So there's a whole spectrum of activity. But the fact is that that so-called junk DNA it really consists of acetyl and methyl groups, and uh, the methyl group turns, turns the genes off, and the acetyl group turns the genes on. And so really, everything depends on the environment. So when I was talking, let's say, about the maids in the New York, uh, in New York, the Harvard study, what happens is that they're that their expectations, which also applies to, to the placebo effect, by the way, or to hypnosis or a hundred different things, um, their environment will affect the switches, either in a, either them turning on or off. And so we are no longer, um, we no longer believe that genes are your destiny. Genes are just the beginning. They are the hardwiring of the brain, but then the environment is the software. And so what you put into your computer will really guide and control what your computer can do, right? And so also, of course, we can, we, we can get problems with the software and uh, we, we can, we can develop a problem in the software and then the computer or that particular software doesn't work. And it's the same thing with our brain and bodies. So uh, what epigenetics has allowed to do, if I may just spend one more minute on it, uh, what epigenetics has allowed us to do is, is to be more in charge of our lives than before. So it's no longer the genes over which we have no control. I mean, we were just born with them. We had no choice. We didn't say to you, we didn't say to our father, I want gene number A and nine <laughs> and 21B, right? You, you were just given that. But then what you do with it, that's, you know, whether you exercise in your gym or not, that will make a difference. I wasn't even consulted with on my name and the spelling, so right. uh, I, didn't, I didn't get a call on the genes. But I think um, when when I first started learning about epigenetics, I almost felt a little, you know, sad or overwhelmed in the sense of, oh, if there were stresses in early childhood, for example, okay, no, so so because of environment, you know, maybe that shifted the way I am. And then I began to That's realize, and one of the things your book really got me thinking about was, well, um, humans are nothing if not adaptable. And in the same way, these can be turned on, um, or, or we can adapt to stresses. And 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 I definitely want to um, get into chronic effects of stress with you. We can also reverse that. We can we can engineer our um, our thoughts, our attitudes, our environments. Yes. Um, and and one of the things that that I think about with um, 
for example, the hotel study yes. is, um, you know, I'm, I'm fond of saying things are, are incremental until they're exponential. Um, mm-hmm. And a lot of, you know, small changes. And I think if you feel like you're sort of separate, a lot of people, their professional lives kind of feel like, I just have to do this. It's separate from who I am, or how I want to live my life. And when you begin to say, oh, okay, well, there's an alignment here. I, I do want to exercise more. I do want to move more. And it turns out that I have all these opportunities um, in my in my working life. I can imagine, now I'm just, you know, I, yeah. kind of kind of <laughs> pontificating here, but I no, can imagine, um, you know, these the, the hotel maids would say, okay, well, maybe um, they were a little more um, enthusiastic about certain movements. They were a little quicker to, to make an extra trip up a flight of stairs, for example. And yeah. these incremental changes... Um, might have been enough change from their mm-hmm. baseline to mm-hmm. to create um, you know to turn on different different uh, gene expression. Is that is that a fair? I way think, to think I, about it. I think I think that's fair. And and by itself, I think it would put into question, at least into question, not necessarily um, contradicted, but certainly put into question the results of that study except that we have hundreds of studies similar to it, okay? Uh, at McGill University, uh, for example, there was a study done on, plus, uh, on, on psilocybin, a very interesting study. I don't know whether you've heard of it or not, but uh, there, there were a group of young students and uh, they were going to have a psilocybin party. Okay. And the researchers gave to half the group a placebo uh, but they told them that it was psilocybin. And the other group got the real stuff. And the majority of the placebo psilocybin group, the, the majority that really just got a sugar pill, but believed that it was psilocybin, mm-hmm. had very, very similar experiences, hallucinations, delusions. Uh, one, one woman described a, a picture on the wall moving, all kinds of strange experiences, a majority, not every one of them, but a majority of the group that only got the placebo believed that they have had a silo, they have had psilocybin. And, and there are hundreds of studies like that. So uh, the mind does have a tremendous influence on, mm-hmm. uh, on, on your experiences. Uh, and geneticists now who are studying this believe that actually uh, the belief system changes uh, the expression of certain genes, which then control the hallucinations and delusions and all that other stuff that's happening. I should have gone to McGill. Yes, yes. You, it's, but it's I, incredible. Th- I think you have done okay. <laughs> <laughs> You had an example in the book of um, a, a, a decrease in brain age uh, for every flight of uh, stairs climbed in a day. Do you remember this one? Vaguely, yes. Go on. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think you said you pulled about five hundred different studies and yes. and, and, yeah. and books. Yeah, yeah. So there's there's it's, lots it's of juggle. Yeah. So I just have a note here. It was it was point yeah. five eight. Yes. Uh, years of, of decrease in brain age for every flight of stairs yes. uh, climbed yes. in a day. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's coming back. Yes. That's really one of the things I do want to get across. Um, it's it's something, it's not just a belief. I mean, it, no. it's something I've seen over and over again. It's just small things matter. These yes. tiny changes do matter. And, um, and, and in some cases, I would imagine uh, right down to an epigenetic level where you are changing the expression of your own DNA. How incredible Ab- is that? It is very incredible. I notice you have some green plants behind you. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, there are quite a number of studies that have shown that uh, people who are exposed to nature also do better in every which way than people who are not. Uh, there was one study a long time ago uh, which compared two groups of cardiac patients, people who have just had open heart surgery. And one group was in rooms that overlooked a garden. And the other group was in was in a room that overlooked just a brick wall, nothing else. Well, the group that was able to look out at the green garden 
recovered twice as fast as the group that was looking at a brick wall. And, and again, there are many, many studies that show that uh, people who, let's say, every day go for a walk in a park or in a forest or something that is more natural do a lot better than people who live in a concrete jungle. So you having in your gym some green plants, I think, is a great idea. The, yeah, this has been a recent obsession of mine. Oh yeah, where to uh, to jungle up the gym and ask like how, how you know for in the early years like you know I've been around for uh, we've been in the space for for over thirteen years in the early days, uh-huh. yeah, I, you know I felt a lot. Um, I, I felt like, okay, it should look like a proper gym. Yeah, I want to be a professional. And at this point, yeah. I, don't, I don't know if it's been it, the pandemic or me getting older or, yeah. or just uh, the shedding, uh, as we say, of shit's given. Yes. But over time, you know, I've just said, how, how much greenery, how much plant life can we bring in, in here? And I love it. Um, yes. Well, science, science supports that. Sometimes it's it's well and good to know the the theory behind this, but what do we do? How do we integrate this knowledge in in a practical way into our lives? Well, I I think you know what we said for for example about gut health is very important. Uh, just just knowing that everything is connected, and that you need to take care of your body if you want. I mean, it's a very old idea. I did not invent it. You know, that in a healthy body lives a healthy mind. This is not something that I can take credit for. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I do take credit for is to support it with scientific data so that it's not just like an old wife saying or something we inherited from Homer or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, yeah, the ancient it, Greeks knew they weren't, this isn't yeah, a new no, idea, like you said. No, yeah. yeah, it's not a new idea. But, uh, you know, science has become the new religion. And whereas people believed whatever, you know, they were taught in their churches uh, or equivalent uh, houses of worship uh, was, you know, the word of God. Nowadays, we believe in science more than we believe in religion. And so science has become, you know, our new religion. And so I'm preaching, I'm preaching the new religion. Yeah, well, I mean, there are, there are uh, ardent um, scientific atheists as well. Yes. Uh, yes. Right now we're balancing that, yes. uh, which, which is tough. I, you know, that's the thing we, we, we've spoken about. Yeah, um, but just to come back to your question, because I mm-hmm. did not completely answer it. Uh, so, yeah, I think that, you know, knowing how everything is so, so connected, like going out into nature, for example, we were talking about, that's important. So someone who, who, who just, you know, exercises on an exercise bike for three hours in their attic is, you know, not really taking advantage of the new science that we know uh, can help you, okay? I mean, obviously, that is a good thing to do, but it's not enough, okay? You have to take care of your body in many different ways. Um, and, and so, you know, looking at, for example, what you eat uh, is important to make sure that your gut bacteria are really in good shape. If you are taking antibiotics, for example, by all means, you know, take probiotics, take yoga, mm-hmm. uh, you know, eat things, that will be helpful to your good bacteria. Right. So, uh, you know, keep all these things, keep all these things in mind and also uh, be optimistic. I think being optimistic is really, 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 really important. And and I, I, I'm not like, I'm not suggesting sort of a fake it till you make it kind of a Pollyannish attitude, you know, an, op- an optimism that is naive, unthinking, unrealistic. It, it, has to be, it has to be grounded in what you're actually doing, okay? Uh, so if, if I'm joining your gym, your gym uh, I also need to spend time walking perhaps, you know, in a park. I also need to spend time in social relationships, in caring about other people. 
if I think well of myself, research again shows that if you think well of yourself, other people will think well of you. If other people will think well of you, you get into a positive kind of a feedback cycle. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, you like me. Oh, that makes me feel better about myself. Then I will be in a better position to like you because I have something to give. Now, I'm, I'm bought into this and it took me a long time, honestly, to get here. So I also know I can hear the collective puckering of, of the sphincters of the pessimists and knee-jerk contrarians uh, uh, listening to this. I see you, I hear you. Um, but this is, uh, like you said, this is not just um, pretending. I exactly. think it is more, it is paying attention. It is simply noticing the positive things that are, uh, that are around us, the things that are working. Right, uh, right. And whatever your level of scrutiny is, is, is fine. We, we, we will hold it to that standard, but even hold, use that standard and look around and see what you can find that is working, that is successful, that does feel good. Yes. Uh, exercise some insight, you know, some introspection. Uh, you asked me at the beginning, your very first question, you know, who am I? Mm -hmm. And I think all of us, all of us should ask that question once in a while. You know, who am I? Where am I going? What am I doing? Uh, can I do it better? Is there scientific evidence? You know, if you read The Embodied Mind, the book that, you know, I've just published, if you read that, different people will react to it differently. But it doesn't matter how you react as long as you react. <laughs> that's, that's what I want, you know? I, I want a response so that it will trigger some thinking on your part, you know? Even if you disagree with me, that's great. I mean, you know, I'm not looking for it. <laughs> <laughs> but, but at least, you know, it makes you think, okay? In your head, you're arguing with me, and that's good because that makes you think. Yeah, I mean, the science is, is pretty solid. Really what you're yeah. doing is... Um, looking at it through a specific sort of uh, lens, lens or, or, or yes. organization of yes. what we already know. Yes. Um, and and I mean, and my gut, uh, you know, says says yeah, this this makes a ton of sense, and we have so much information come coming in. The there's a joke, you know, like the uh, the brain is the most important organ in your body according to your brain. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> right. And, and we but we have so much sensory data, mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, memory, and I guess, and that's one of the things you explore, uh, you know, uh, yes, uh, memory. Uh, cell, cells and, and genes as, as essentially mm -hmm. in, encoding memory. It's, it's kind yes. of locking in a structure, right? And some things are stored and latent until uh, yes. like, like uh, uh, you talked about an uh, immune response. There's, there's an immune function in there as well, right? Yes, absolutely. Yes. Yes. And what we have to remember, you know, is that, that nature um, nature is very careful. Um, it, it, it uses all the things that have worked in the past to build on past success. So when we first started as unicellular organisms, you know, as, as sponges and molds and bacteria later on, but sponges and molds were really the first sort of living, what we can call living things they already had cells that later on then became more complex, built up more complex networks, as you said before. Uh, and it's, it's those very same cells that have just been gradually by nature and evolution repurposed. So that cell that, cell that originally just worked in the gut because that was the most important thing for the first unicellular organisms. How did they survive? Well, they have to eat something. And so the gut cells were the first cells that really had some function. But evolution gradually built on that so that the neurons that we have in our brains or the neurons that we have in our guts, because we also have... Uh, we, we also have neurons in, in our intestines, in the walls of our intestines, as we have them also in the heart. Uh, they just gradually evolve from those very first cells. 
So it's a continuous line of evolution. And we are really, on some level, not that different from those first unicellular organisms, except that we have billions of cells instead of just having one or two cells. But the cells are the same. Mm-hmm. It makes me think of, um, you know, uh, uh, martial arts, for example, yes. or any kind of physical skill where, you know, people typically pay a lot of attention to uh, the complex parts or, or um, what, what we see as expertise, but ultimately it's just simple things stacked on top of simple things. Right. Stacked on top of simple things. We're, we're just a, a vast uh, uh, collection. But like one one thing that that your book really got me thinking about is yeah this idea of of um, junk material in the body like it is so much work metabolically uh, to maintain anything um, our bodies are are you know one one of the reasons for our adaptability is is efficiency we don't like to do extra work as organisms so it's kind of hard to believe that we're just carrying around dead weight for, uh, you know, for millennia, right? That's right. That's right. That's right. But, you know, evolution is is just a, a master at hanging on to biological bits that have worked in the past. And then they, then it uses it. Uh, it if I can anthropomorphize nature, uh, then it uses those bits to build bigger and bigger and bigger constructions. But essentially, it's the same bricks that are being used for bigger buildings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Gosh. Okay. <laughs> we've, we've covered a lot. Yes, we have. We've and, a uh, lot. And it's, it's been really enjoyable talking to you because you have obviously thought a lot about these, uh, these issues and uh, you have your own ideas. And it, I really, honestly, God, I just enjoy talking with you. Well, likewise, I really, uh, you know, I, I, I'm so glad I, I discovered your book. Thank and, you. Uh, and you were very, uh, you, you know, you're very amiable uh, and, and generous with your time in terms of coming on. Um, and I, I'm going to take you up on that chest. He's going he's gonna to kick my ass in case anybody's wondering. Uh, but I'm, uh, I, I would love to. Uh, sure, we to, can do uh, it. Play on... with you. Okay. 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 Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, and, uh, you know, I look forward to, uh, to speaking with you more. And the name of the book is? And the name of the book, good lineup, is, um, oh my gosh. The Embodied Brain. The Embodied Brain. brain. I, knew it, I knew it in my gut. The Embodied Brain through, it, you said it was Pegasus Pegasus. Press? Yes, yes, yes. Uh-huh. But available everywhere. And, uh, and I will point out that at the end of every chapter are practical takeaways so this isn't just theory this is um it's it's a robust body of science but it is ultimately designed to be used thank you thank you very much for the interview i enjoyed it thank you so much take care well this concludes my interview with dr thomas verney who is a sweet man he's a fellow canadian and i think he has hit on a uh not a perspective but an organization of the science and the understanding of what is going on in a way that is really helpful. Um, when I think about skill, and that's the thing I think about a lot, I realize that there is no technique, there is no skill that doesn't stand on the shoulders of a thousand physiological processes. So if you just imagine, for example, um, you know, I was watching a video yesterday of a, of a cameraman, of a videographer for the, uh, for the NBA, and he's following... Uh, the athletes as they move up and down the court, and he is tracking these shots with incredible precision. Now, some of this is conscious, you know, where he's saying, okay, I'm going to follow this player, or this is a trend that I'm seeing in the game. Some of it, uh, a lot of it is unconscious, just skills that have been practiced and practiced until they have become uh, physical structures. They've remodeled uh, his hippocampus. The lower part of his uh, neocortex, right? There, there are hardware changes. There is myelination that's changed that sped up this stuff. That's all happening. And meanwhile, he's walking down the court. Um, his leg movement is governed by central pattern generators that don't even need to tie in to his higher brain function. And meanwhile, nutrients and hormones, oxygen, it's all being circulated uh, into his legs. So you can't just strip out the brain. 
and say, this exists without the body. I think that if I want to leave you, you know, and I always want to leave you with some kind of practical takeaway, it is this, you are going to get information, input, uh, you can call it intuition, you can call it going with your gut, you're going to have sort of a felt sense of what is going on. And should you be reacting to that? Well, you shouldn't be ignoring it. Now, how good is your gut? Um, well, that, that's, that's a great question. And I think we have to listen to our intuition, pay attention. This is my sense of things. And then see what your higher brain functions have to say. See what your thinky brain has to say. And if you don't have a track record of, of going with your gut, then start small and check things out. We're, we're making a series of very tiny bets, right? Um, it's something personal I've been working on for a long time. And so I'll, I'll listen to my gut. And I know I've got a pretty good track record of success with it. So then uh, I, I'll, I'll check it against my, uh, uh, my cognition. The more I do this, the more I know that I can, I can lean into what my, uh, my felt sense is, what my, my moral compass is, what, what my intuition is. And you know what? This, the biggest leap I've taken with this is this podcast. So I, I really do hope this is uh, resonating with you, that you're finding this interesting. I'd love to hear from you. I'd love your feedback. Uh, and I'd love to do more of this. So thank you for listening today. A special thank you to uh, my guest, Thomas Verney. You can follow the Dad Strength Podcast on the Unlearning Network. You can follow us on your favorite podcast platform and on social media. We are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Look at us. Look at us. Thanks for listening with your whole brain and your whole body. We'll see you soon.